Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who perform heinous acts. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. Grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. covering the story of the Ruby Ridge standoff. But first, let's find out some more info about a town near Ruby Ridge in this week's PNW Town Profile. Bonners Ferry is about 8 miles from where the Ruby Ridge standoff took place. In 1863, gold was discovered in British Columbia and thousands of prospectors from all over surged northward over a route that became known as the Wild Horse Trail. Edward Bonner, a merchant from Walla Walla, Washington, established a ferry in 1864 where the trail crossed the Kootenai River. The village of Bonner's Ferry was established in 1893 along the river. Numerous mines were developed in the nearby mountains and the lumber industry grew rapidly. 
In the 20th century, it became a lumbering and farming community. As of the 2010 census, the population was 2,543. On September 20th, 1974, the Kootenai tribe declared war on the U.S. government. Their first act was to post soldiers on each end of the highway and ask people to pay a toll to drive through the town of what had been the tribe's aboriginal land. The money was used to house and care for elderly tribal members. Most tribes in the U.S. are forbidden from declaring war on the U.S. government due to treaties. However, the Kootenai tribe never signed a treaty. The dispute ended with the U.S. government conceding a 10.5-acre area that is now the Kootenai Reservation. And now on to our story. Randall Claude Weaver, known as Randy Weaver, was born on January 3, 1948, to parents Clarence and Wilma Weaver, a farming couple of Villisca, Iowa. He grew up in a deeply religious household, and his family struggled to find a denomination that matched their views. They changed churches often, moving around among evangelical, Presbyterian, and Baptist churches. Weaver was an average student and enjoyed playing baseball and football in high school. At the age of 20, he dropped out of community college and joined the United States Army in October of 1968 during the height of the Vietnam War. He was stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, where he became a Green Beret. After three years of service, he was honorably discharged from the Army and married Victoria Jordison one month later. The couple were married at the First Congressional Church in Fort Dodge, Iowa, in 1971. Randy found a job working at the local John Deere factory, and Vicki first worked as a secretary and then became a stay-at-home mother. At first, they were your normal all-American family, but Vicky's beliefs began to change. I found a picture of the family before this big change happened, and I'll post it on my Instagram, which is at Upper Left Corner Pod, and you can see what their family looks like when they were your average Midwestern family from Iowa. Vicky decided to begin following Old Covenant laws. So I looked into these laws a little bit, and basically it means that she was following the Old Testament beliefs of the Bible, while the traditional Christian churches accept the New Testament beliefs as the guidelines that they live by. Long story short, the Old Testament is before Jesus died and the New Testament is after, which gives people a lot more grace in the so-called rules or guidelines for Christians than the Old Covenant laws. One of these beliefs that the Weavers subscribed to was in regards to race. They believed in Christian identity, which holds that white people are the lost tribe of Israel. Due to their fundamentalist beliefs, Vicki began to believe the apocalypse was imminent due to a corrupt civilization. She began to have a reoccurring dream that her family was living on a mountaintop during the apocalypse. As the spiritual leader of the family, she decided that to protect their family, which now included three children, they would start taking steps to be able to live off the grid. So in 1978, they began by living without electricity and refined their survivalist skills. In the early 1980s, they moved to a 20-acre property in the remote area of Ruby Ridge, Idaho. They paid $5,000 and traded their moving truck for the land and built a cabin. Their cabin did not have running water or electricity. One thing I found interesting about their beliefs was that when a woman was bleeding from her cycle or after having a baby, it was considered unclean, so Vicki and her daughter would live in the shed during their time of the month. A few years after moving into the cabin, Vicki gave birth to her fourth child in that shed, in January, with no heat or running water. That just goes to show you how dedicated she was to her beliefs. Vicki also homeschooled the children. 
At the time of the Ruby Ridge incident, their oldest daughter, Sarah, was 16. Son, Samuel, was 14. Daughter, Rachel, was 10. And their baby girl named Elisheba was 10 months old. In 1984, Randy Weaver and his neighbor had a dispute over a $3,000 land deal. The neighbor lost and was ordered to pay Weaver an additional $2,100 in court costs and damages. In retaliation, the neighbor wrote letters to the FBI, Secret Service, and the county sheriff, alleging that Weaver had threatened to kill Pope John Paul II, President Ronald Reagan, and Idaho Governor John V. Evans. This caused an FBI and Secret Service investigation in January of 1985. On February 12th, Randy and Vicki were interviewed by two FBI agents, two Secret Service agents, the Boundary County Sheriff, and his chief investigator. The Secret Service had been told that Randy had ties to the white supremacist group, the Aryan Nations, and he had a large weapon cache at his cabin. Weaver denied these allegations, and no charges were ever filed. Reportedly, he had attended three or four meetings of the Aryan Nations at Hayden Lake, where there was a compound for government resistors and white separatists. This investigation made Randy become even more of a recluse and angry at the government. The investigation noted that Weaver did associate with known members of the Aryan Nations, but this claim was denied by Weaver, who said he was associated with the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, which is a far-right militant organization dedicated to Christian identity and survivalism. So according to the Wikipedia page about this group, it's very similar to the Aryan Nations. The church leader had close ties to the KKK, and the church itself was on the FBI's watch list. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, a.k.a. the ATF, kept a particularly close eye on these groups and were very attentive to the large number of guns that these communities possessed. This led to a never-ending loop where the government spied on these groups, making the anti-government groups more paranoid, causing the government to view them as more of a threat and spy on them more. In 1989, Weaver went to an Aryan Nation meeting and met a new acquaintance. They discussed how the Soviet Union war was inevitable and how Randy needed money. At some point in the conversation, the two men struck a deal. Weaver would sell the man two sawed-off shotguns that were five inches shorter than the federal limit for sawed-offs. It's not clear whose idea this was. Both men blamed each other. And the reason why this becomes so important is that the man that Randy made the deal with was an undercover ATF officer and if the officer was the one who proposed the deal, then it could be considered entrapment. Two weeks later, Weaver sold the guns, and not long after that, the ETF came after him. But they had a deal to offer him. If he became an informant against the Aryan Nations, they would drop the gun charges. Weaver refused their offer and told the Aryan Nations about the undercover ATF agent who had been posing as a member. Randy Weaver was not going to turn himself in willingly, so the ATF came up with a plan to capture him not on his property. In January 1991, three agents posed as stranded motorists near his home and had a neighbor send a signal when he was headed down the road. Randy stopped to help the motorist, and the county sheriff arrested him and brought him in for arraignment. Weaver's court date was set for February 19, 1991, and he was released on bond. The court date was later rescheduled for February 20th, 1991 instead. However, a letter sent to Weaver by a probation officer mistakenly listed the date as March 20th, 1991. On February 20th, Weaver missed his court date. I'm not sure if he would have appeared even if he had the right day, 
but this is an important detail since it added fuel to the fire for both sides. A bench warrant was issued at this time for the now federal charges on the gun sale and failure to appear. The government became concerned about how they would bring him in to stand trial at this point, and Vicki began a letter-writing campaign stating that they were not going to go down easily. Vicki had become notorious for writing angry letters to the government and public figures. The ATF decided the capture was beyond their resources, and the U.S. Marshal Service was tasked with bringing him in. They knew Weaver had lots of guns and was associated with extremist groups, and he made violent threats in the past. But from what I could find, only what the neighbor had reported over five years earlier after the land dispute. From the government's perspective, Weaver was a violent threat. However, this would prove to be a mistake. The analysis conducted after the standoff found that this assessment was based on faulty reasoning. While all of those things were true, Weaver had never been convicted of a violent crime, and there was no evidence that he or his family would have attacked. The Weavers were not terrorists. They just wanted to be left alone. While there was a chance he may have reacted violently, investigators found that Randy Weaver was not a severe threat. For the 18 months after the missed court date, the authorities weighed their options on how they would bring Randy in. They even set up surveillance and watched the family home. A couple of things they noticed made them feel like they couldn't approach the cabin to arrest Randy. They noted that each adult would be carrying a gun every time they went outside. But to me, that is not unusual. They lived way out in the sticks where the threat of wildlife is far greater than the threat of man, and if they encountered a bear or a cougar, they needed to be prepared. The authorities also claimed that Randy seemed to walk with his children in front of him, and they thought it was because he was using his children as human shields in case there were snipers. To me, this is likely far-fetched. I know Randy was paranoid about the government, but I doubt he thought snipers were coming for him over a failure to appear charge. But again, if he found out that he was under surveillance at his rural cabin, that would make him more paranoid and likely to act erratically. The authorities also backed up their claims that it would be too dangerous to approach the Weaver home because of Vicky's letter-writing campaign, and they thought she would rather harm her children than have her family taken down by the government. However, her letters never stated as much. The authorities also spoke with neighbors, and they warned against going onto their property but let me remind you, that was likely the same neighbor that lost a property dispute against the Weavers and turned him into the FBI to be investigated in the first place. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Every year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. That's not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance and mental health. Just those two. And these deaths are completely preventable. That is why Jay Schiffman, a public speaker and coach, has started the podcast, Choose Your Struggle. Jay interviews people with lived experience on topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery to help end the stigma and normalize the difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. There are massive system changes that need to happen, but until we can have honest conversations around these topics, these lives will continue to be lost. This is why Jay started the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He tells his story as a guy in long-term recovery who survived two suicide attempts and an overdose. He's taking a second chance at life and making it meaningful by using this podcast as a platform. With over 100 five-star ratings, the Choose Your Struggle podcast is for everyone, from those struggling with substance or mental health issues to the people who love them. Check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. And now back to the story. 
1992, nearly 18 months after the missed court date, Ruby Ridge became the site of an 11-day standoff. It began on August 21st when deputies of the United States Marshal Service attempted to apprehend and arrest Randy Weaver under a bench warrant for failing to appear on the firearms charge. Six marshals began to infiltrate the property and were scouting it out. This quickly turned into chaos when the Weaver's 14-year-old son, Sammy, and family friend, Kevin Harris, who lived with the family, were out walking on the property with the family dog, Stryker. The dog began barking and ran in the direction of the six marshals who were hiding. The exact sequence of events are highly disputed by both sides, but Sammy, Harris, and the marshals ended up exchanging fire. One of the marshals shot and killed Stryker, and then either Sammy or Harris killed Marshal William Deegan. And somehow Sammy Weaver ended up dead with a bullet in his back. This began the nearly two-week standoff between the Weaver family, Kevin Harris, and federal agents. The marshals retreated. Sammy's body was carried to the Weaver home, and no more violence occurred on that day. On day two of the standoff with the U.S. Marshal dead, the ATF and U.S. Marshals reached out to the FBI's hostage rescue team. Before even arriving in Idaho, the FBI changed their rules of engagement for this standoff. Any adult holding a gun, whether assessed as a risk or not, was to be put down with lethal force. This would turn out to be a very important point later when this incident was investigated. The FBI hostage rescue team arrived on the second day and brought snipers along with them. This escalated the situation to a whole new level. One of the snipers was Agent Lon Horiuchi. He had the opportunity for a shot when Randy, Kevin, and the oldest daughter, Sarah, went from the house to the shed to check on Sammy's body. He fired on the three of them, causing them to scatter and run back towards the house. His first shot was intended for Randy's spine as a kill shot, but Randy had moved erratically back towards the cabin, and this caused the shot to hit his shoulder and exit through his armpit area. Things got even more chaotic when Horiuchi fired a second shot at Randy and Kevin, who were diving through the door. This shot went through Vicky's head, killing her instantly, and then hit Kevin Harris, wounding him. Vicky was unarmed and holding her 10-month-old daughter. The family covered Vicky's body and now knew they could not leave the cabin again due to the snipers. Which, when you think about that situation, it must have been deplorable. There was no electricity or running water in the cabin. It was August, and their matriarch was dead on the floor. Not only that, they only had so much food, and now a baby who was breastfed with no mother. The hostage relief team was unaware that they had killed Vicki Weaver, and the following day asked via megaphone what she and her kids had for breakfast and if they would like to come out for pancakes. The Weaver family thought the authorities had known that they had killed her and were taunting the family over the death of their matriarch. At this point, anti-government protesters began to line the road, leading to the Weaver home, as the situation had become national news. The first two deaths of Sammy Weaver and U.S. Marshal William Deegan were now public knowledge, and within a few days, so was the death of Vicki Weaver. At this point, the protesters grew from just the anti-government crowd, and the general public began to show outrage at the death of a child and mother. The FBI hostage negotiators were getting nowhere after days and days so they began using civilians to communicate with the family. The standoff finally ended at Ruby Ridge when an unexpected source offered to help. Bo Greitz was a third-party candidate for president that coming November. He reached out to the FBI and offered to help. Greitz had similar views as the Weavers and had a history of saving POWs and was a decorated leader in the Special Forces. 
They figured Weaver might listen to a like-minded person, so they let him reach out. He began to negotiate and de-escalate between the government and the Weavers. On the 10th day of the standoff, Kevin Harris, who had been badly wounded on the second day of the standoff, required medical attention and surrendered. Randy Weaver and his three daughters surrendered the following day, finally ending the standoff on August 30th. Weaver and Harris were both taken into custody. They spent 14 months in jail awaiting trial. Three people were dead, two were killed by federal agents, one was unarmed, and one was a child who was shot in the back. All of this over failing to appear in court. The public shockingly sided with a known racist because the government had bungled the situation so terribly. Both Weaver and Harris were arraigned on a variety of federal charges, including first-degree murder for the death of Deputy Marshal Deegan. Harris was acquitted of all charges, and Randy was acquitted on all charges aside from the original bail condition violation for the arms charges and missing his court date. He was fined $10,000 and sentenced to 18 months in prison, which was credited with time served plus an additional three months. When all was said and done, he was released after 16 months in prison. Weaver's attorney was Jerry Spence, who argued that all of Weaver's actions were self-defense and that he had been entrapped by law enforcement. Spence later said that he took the case against the advice of many of his colleagues and friends as they thought it might paint him in a bad light due to Weaver's racial beliefs. He went on to say that he completely disagreed with those beliefs, but what happened to Weaver's wife and son were unconscionable. During the federal criminal trial of Weaver and Harris, Weaver's attorney made accusations of criminal wrongdoing against the agencies involved in the incident, which included the FBI, U.S. Marshal Services, ATF, and United States Attorney's Office for Idaho. At the end of the trial, the Department of Justices formed the Ruby Ridge Task Force to investigate these claims. In August of 1995, the U.S. government avoided a trial on a civil suit filed by the Weavers by awarding the three surviving daughters $1 million each and Randy Weaver $100,000 over the deaths of his wife and son. Kevin Harris pressed a civil suit for damages as well. However, federal officials vowed that they would never pay someone who killed a U.S. Marshal. Harris had been acquitted by a jury trial on the grounds of self-defense. After over five years of persistent appeals, Harris was awarded a $380,000 settlement from the government in September of 2000. In the fall of 1995, the Senate Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Government Information held hearings and issued a report calling for reforms in the federal law enforcement to prevent losses of life like those at Ruby Ridge and restore public confidence in federal law enforcement. The Ruby Ridge incident and the 1993 Waco standoff involved many of the same agencies, including the FBI and ATF, and even had some of the same personnel, the FBI commander, that changed the rules of engagement to name one. These hearings led to a standardization of deadly force policy among the federal law enforcement agencies that was implemented in October of 1995. Also, the change that was made by the FBI that declared that any adult holding a weapon could be put down by legal force was ruled unconstitutional as it violated the Second Amendment. Also in 1995, Timothy McVeigh cited the Ruby Ridge incident as a contributing factor in his decision to attack the United States federal government. He was convicted of killing 168 people in the Oklahoma City bombing. 
McVeigh viewed Ruby Ridge as clear evidence that the U.S. government aimed to disarm the public and take away people's Second Amendment rights, and this viewpoint was strengthened after Waco. McVeigh was executed in 2001 and continued to claim until his death that the bombing was retribution for Ruby Ridge and Waco, and that he deliberately planned for the bombing to take place on the second anniversary of Waco. Sarah Weaver, the oldest of the Weaver children, said that she is devastated when she hears of violence being committed in the name of the Ruby Ridge incident. In 1997, the Boundary County prosecutor indicted the FBI sniper Lon Horiuchi for manslaughter for the death of Vicki before the statute of limitations could expire. Idaho versus Horiuchi was moved to the federal courts, which has jurisdiction over federal agents. It was later dismissed, but the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit ruled in 2001 that Horiuchi could be tried on state charges. But a new county prosecutor that had been elected in 2000 dismissed the case, saying it was unlikely the state would be able to prove the criminal charges. This decision was very controversial. Horiuchi was also involved in the Waco incident in 1993, and there was controversy there with him as well. Although they could not confirm that Horiuchi was the first shot in that situation, it was suspected, which escalated the situation. Since he was involved in scandal and two major standoffs about a year apart, he became a target of threats and hate mail. For about five months after the Waco incident, Timothy McVeigh would work at gun shows and hand out business cards with Horiuchi's home address in hopes that someone with the Patriot movement would assassinate him. McVeigh admitted he considered doing it himself before deciding to go forward with the bombing. Deputy U.S. Marshal William Deegan was killed in action on the first day of the standoff. He was one of the six deputy marshals that was scouting the area to come up with a plan to bring Randy in, when the Weaver's dog encountered them and a firefight ensued. William Deegan was a husband and father of two sons. Deegan was a former college football player at the University of New Hampshire and graduated first in his basic training class. He was involved in some of the most difficult missions of the time, including Hurricane Hugo, in which he was the Special Operations Group commander, the arrest of a fugitive who killed two Boston police officers, and the capture of the founders of the Church of Love organization. His leadership earned him the Director's Special Achievement Award in 1989. After his death, his wife and family organized an annual charity run in his hometown. The event has raised over $250,000 for local charities over the years. His wife also lobbied for a bill that would cover the cost of college for children of government employees who die in the line of duty, which passed in the 90s. Today, Randy Weaver is a grandfather. He lives in Kalispell, Montana, and his three surviving children are grown and working. Eldest daughter, Sarah, and her father wrote a book about the standoff called The Federal Siege at Ruby Ridge. Sarah also wrote her life biography in a book titled Ruby Ridge to Freedom, the Sarah Weaver story. The Weavers still own the property at Ruby Ridge, but only the foundation of the cabin remains. Randy remarried in 1999, and in 2007, he was at a rally and announced that he had become an atheist. The Ruby Ridge incident still has fallout to this day, as many alt-right groups cite this as the type of government overreach that they are fighting against. And that is the story of the Ruby Ridge standoff.
TNW wine that I paired with my true crime is Gard Venter's The Dawn Red Blends. I stopped by a tasting room and asked for the employee to recommend something to me for the podcast. We had a nice chat about my favorite murder and I left with a bottle of The Dawn. Gard Ventures is sustainably estate grown at Lawrence Vineyards in the Columbia Valley of Washington. The tasting notes are as follows. This cab heavy red blend includes heavy black fruits, herbs, and spice weaved through a polished palette with silky tannins and a juicy finish. And I thoroughly enjoyed this red blend. You can grab your own bottle from one of the Gard Ventures tasting rooms in Walla Walla, Woodenville, or Ellensburg. Cheers and thank you for listening. left corner a pnw true crime podcast if you enjoyed the episode today please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend all of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com you can follow the show on instagram at upper left corner pod or on facebook at upper left corner podcast if you have a case suggestion or a pnw wine recommendation please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com Thank you for your support.